0: Did you know that we forget 90% of what we hear after only one week? After only one week, you remember only 10% of what you've heard. But the good news is there is a way to increase retention. Repetition, repetition, repetition. There's an old Latin phrase which translated says, repetition is the mother of all learning. And if you want to increase your retention levels, the amount of information that you do remember, it's through repetition that this is most easily done. uh, When something is repeated over and over again, it becomes truly ingrained in who you are. And this morning, we're going to look at what is probably the most repeated passage of Scripture. Scripture. Not John uh, 3.16, that's where our minds go. We all memorize that as a little kid and repeat it over and over, but that's not the passage. I want you to open up your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 6. As we take a look at a passage of Scripture that is repeated at least twice a day by Jewish people for a couple thousand years. Deuteronomy chapter 6 is called the Shema, it's really kind of the heartbeat of the Old Testament, the heartbeat of the Jewish faith. Uh, As we continue our series, this exalt series this morning, we're looking at here in Deuteronomy chapter 6 really what it is, what it means to exalt and worship God. Not just on Sundays, but at all times. There on your outline, you can see how I broke down Deuteronomy chapter 6 for you this morning. Uh, Three things we're going to take a look at. Number one is the confession. Verse 4 of Deuteronomy chapter 6 is really this confession of who God is, of what Israel is to believe about him. Then this is followed by, number two on your outline, a commitment. In light of who God is, Israel is then called to make this commitment to him. And then number three on your outline, this confession and this commitment is continued from generation to generation as it's repeated over and over and over again. Again, grab your Bibles. Number one on your outline, let's take a look first at the confession. Deuteronomy chapter 6, beginning with verse 4. Here's the confession. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, The Lord is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. This passage is called the Shema. Shema is the Hebrew word for hear that begins verse 4. This is a crucial passage, again, repeated at least twice daily for Jewish people for thousands of years. Uh, This particular passage is so important that uh, the first word and the last word, when you take the, the last letter in each word, in many Hebrew Bibles, the last letter of the first and last word is exaggerated. The font is larger, and it forms another word, the word for testimony. Because this passage of Scripture is a testimony. It's a witness for who God is, for who Israel is, and the type of people they are supposed to be. I can't express, uh, I can't repeat over and over again enough just how important this passage is in the Old Testament. And it begins with this word here, there in verse 4, Shema. Now, the word here, you need to understand, means much more than just allow the sound waves to enter into your ear, it means much more than just listening. But in the Hebrew way of thinking, the word hear implies not only listening, but also obedience. In other words, to hear God is not just to hear what he has said, but also to put it into practice and to obey. So for the Hebrew way of thinking, to hear God without obedience is not to hear him at all. To put this in terms that we understand If you have kids or grandkids or if you can remember back to when you were a kid, your parent, your grandparent probably told you to do something and you didn't do it. And your parent or grandparent may have said, hey, did you hear me, right? I say this to my kids all the time, did you hear me? And in asking that, you're not really asking if they heard but why they're not obeying, right? Why they're not doing what you said. And it's the same here with this word here implied in it is the step of obedience. So the question is, well, what is it that Israel is to hear and obey? Well, notice again verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. This is a confession of who God is. The thing that Israel is to listen to and obey and put into practice is this confession that the Lord, Yahweh, is their God. The Lord is one. Now, real quick, we need to talk about that word one that ends verse four. Uh, The Hebrew word, uh, it can mean a number of different things. On the one hand, it can mean, as the NASB translates it here, one, as in God is singular. There are not multiple gods, but there is just one God, now, also implied in this or uh, embedded in this is the idea of the Trinity. Uh, the same word is used in Genesis to describe the union between man and woman and becoming one flesh. So although there's plurality, there's unity, right? And that's what the word for one here can mean. But if you have another Bible translation, it may have translated the word one as alone, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. And another way that this particular Hebrew word can be taken is to be taken with the idea of exclusivity. That Yahweh exclusively, only, is the one God of Israel. And this parallels in many ways with what you see in the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods besides him, right? He is to be Israel's one and only true exclusive God. They're not to worship anyone or anything else. So the other way this word can be taken is really an absolute allegiance to God. There's a scholar at Wheaton by the name of Daniel Block, and that's Uh, his position, and he argues that this confession, what we see here in Deuteronomy 6.4, is the the pledge of allegiance for the people of Israel. That this confession is really about pledging their devotion to the one true God and only to the one true God. And so notice here again, in in Deuteronomy 6.4, you see this confession of who God is, Israel is to hear, they're to listen, they're to obey this confession that there is truly only one God and they're to uh, be exclusively connected with him and none other. So this then brings us to number two on your outline. If the confession is about who God is and this exclusive allegiance to him, then number two, it only makes sense that Israel is to give this wholehearted commitment to this one true God. Let's look at number two on your outline, Deuteronomy 6 verse 5. In light of who God is, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. Now we see the commitment. Verse 5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. With all your soul, with all your might. This is the commitment to which Israel is called. You shall love the Lord your God. It's fascinating that this is the first time in the Pentateuch and the Old Testament where Israel is commanded to love God. Previously, the main command you see is that Israel is commanded to fear God. This is the first time Moses commands, I want you, I command you to love God. The question is, what's the difference? Nothing. Uh, Biblically, love and fear are truly two sides of the same coin. Uh, You cannot love God and not also have a healthy fear of him. And implied in both love and fear is this idea of obedience, To truly love God, to truly fear God, means you uh, obey him as well. Biblical love and fear and obedience go hand in hand. Jesus says the same thing in John chapter 14. He says, if you love me, then what? You will obey my commandments. And so this is the idea here that Israel is called, the commitment that they're making is to love God, to obey him. And then how this is done is explained. You shall love God. You shall obey him is the idea. You shall love him with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Let's take a look at each of those three phrases. First, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. When we think of the heart, we primarily think of the heart as the place of emotion But in the Hebrew mindset, the way they thought of a human being, you couldn't divide your heart, your will, and your emotion. They all go together. And so in the Hebrew way of thinking, the heart is not only the seat of emotion, but it's also the seat of your intellect and of your will. The the three ideas go hand in hand. You can't divide and compartmentalize them like we tend to. And so for the Hebrew mindset, the heart really is the combined center of your being. It's this intrinsic component of who you are on the inside. It's this idea now that if you're to love the Lord your God with your heart, it's to love him with total commitment. That there's not a single part of you that loves something else more. So the command here to love the Lord your God with all of your heart means to love him with the entirety of your being. And then notice it continues. Not only does Moses say you're to love the Lord with God with all your heart, but you're also to love him with all your soul. You're to love the Lord your God with all your soul. And I would suggest to you that soul isn't a great translation of the word here. It can mean soul, but again, in the Hebrew way of thinking, the soul is not just this immaterial part of you, but the soul is the essence of who you are. It's your true self. Psychologists talk about your authentic self. That's the idea here. That you're to love the Lord your God with your life, and that's another way this word is translated. You're to love the Lord your God with all your heart. You're to love the Lord your God with all of your soul, with all of your life. Again, the idea here is that nothing is excluded, nothing is left out. He gets all of who you are. And then continuing there in verse 5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and then notice the third phrase here with all your might. The word for might, it's interesting. It's actually more of an adverb. And so you could translate this as, you shall love the Lord your God with your muchness. With your muchness. And if you look at different English translations, some translations put strength or might. Some translations put wealth or possessions because we don't really know how to translate muchness into English, right? We just have to invent a new word. Um, But the idea here again, this word is an intensifier. It's meant to intensify everything that's been said, that this love for God is to be a total commitment. The total self, the full self to total excess is to love God. Nothing is held back. Nothing is exempt. Everything in who we are and in how we live is to love God. By the way, when we look at this passage, the Shema, we see in the New Testament that Jesus talks a lot about the Shema. And what's interesting is when you look in the Gospels and you look at how Jesus uses the Shema, Deuteronomy chapter 6, uh, there are a few interesting changes that takes place. Uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says, you're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. He doesn't say strength, he says mind in Matthew's gospel. Then in Mark's gospel, we don't see three words, we see four. Jesus says, you're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then in Luke's gospel, I preached on this with the famous Mr. Rogers sermon, uh, the gospel of Luke. Uh, Jesus says, you're to love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Again, four words, and he flips the last two. Why? Why? What's the deal? Why the change? There's not really a change. Jesus is explaining really the heart of Shema. And he's elaborating on what that third word, muchness, really means. Again, the idea here is that nothing is held back. That to love the Lord our God is to be done with total access, with everything we are, both inside and out. With all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength, everything we have is to be defined by this all consuming love and passion for God. The essence of the Shema is that just as though God is one, we are to give Him a unified and singular devotion. You see that connection? The confession begins with this statement of who God is. The Lord, your God, is one, and just like there is one God, we are to give one devotion to him and to him only. The singularity of God is met with a singularity of exaltation and worship. Nothing's held back, nothing's exempt. So we see this confession, we see this commitment. That parallels the confession. And now we take a look at number three on your outline that this confession and commitment is meant to be continued from generation to generation. Let's take a look at number three on your outline Deuteronomy chapter six. I'll begin with verses six and seven. Moses says, These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your sons. Let's pause right there. Notice the continuation. Moses says, listen, these words that I'm commanding you today to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, this command is to not only be on your heart, but it's also to be taught to your sons, to your children. So this idea of continuation now is what we see as we move into number three on your outline, that this confession and this commitment is to be continued to the next generation. Notice what Moses says here. He says, You shall teach them, verse seven, you shall teach them diligently to your sons. Now, well, the word for teach is a really interesting word. It's used elsewhere to describe the process of engraving words on granite with a hammer and chisel. And parents, you, you probably can relate to that. Sometimes that's what it feels like, right, when you're trying to work with your kids. It's like literally engraving words in, in granite. Um, it's hard work, but it's worth it. So the command to continue this faith, this confession and this commitment onto the children is to teach. And another Hebrew scholar says that the word for teach here means repetitive teaching. Again, repetition, repetition, repetition. It takes time. You don't just learn it once. We forget 90% of what we hear. And so it's repetitive teaching. And the point here is that parents must educate their children so that the truth of God's word will never be forgotten over and over again. And how is this to be done? Well, notice he tells us. Moses tells the nation of Israel exactly how they're to teach these things diligently to their children. He says, you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. Diligently passing on the faith to future generations. He says, you shall talk of them, talk of the commands of the Lord. And the word for talk in Hebrew, it's repetitive. Repetitive. It's ongoing. It's not something that just happens once, but it happens all the time, habitually throughout the day. Again, because we forget 90% of what we hear only once. Moses says, I want you to talk frequently of the commands of God. And then notice he says, when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. And notice, notice the contrast. When you sit and when you walk. When you lay down and when you rise up. In other words, at all times, no matter what you're doing, or to be instructing, or to be repeating the commands of who God is, the confession and the commitment, everywhere, all the time, God's word governing the conversation. And then, notice verse eight. He gets more specific. He says, "You shall bind them this, these commandments, who God is, and the commitment." To make to him, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. These commandments, these statements about who God is and the commitment to Him, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. They're to be a sign. Why? Because we forget. And over the years, the Jewish people have taken this very literally. And I have something to show you. It's not a red sweater, Mr. Rogers, um, but uh, you've heard of phylacteries, right? Jesus uh, condemned the Pharisees for broadening their phylacteries. And over the years, these are uh, phylacteries uh, where portions of Deuteronomy are are put in these little boxes. If you go to Israel with me, have I mentioned we're going on an Israel trip? Um, We'll go to the Western Wall, the Wailing Wall, and you will see Orthodox Jews who, who wear these on their head and on their hand. Uh, They took this very literally. They bound the word of God to their head and to their hands. Why? Well, I would argue they missed really the point. What's the point of this? Why does God command to bind his word to the forehead and to the hand? One commentator I read said that the essence of this command is that our hands are to be tied by God's word. And that our eyes are to be guarded by God's word. In other words, God's word governs our hands. It's tied around our hands. It governs what we do. And God's word is to be wrapped around our mind. It's to be governing how we think and how we process information, right? That God's word is the center of it all. It filters out truth from error. And that's really the heart, I think, of what this command is. So continually... Moses tells the children of Israel, I want you to be talking about these things, repeating them over and over, repetition, 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 and literally binding uh, the Word of God in what you do and in how you think. And then notice he continues, verse 9. He goes on and says, you shall write them, these commands. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house. You've probably seen one of these. Uh, It's called a mezuzah. And again, Jewish people have taken this very literally. If you go to a Jewish person's house today, an Orthodox Jew, you'll see these uh, over the doorposts at their homes. And contained in this little thing is a portion of Deuteronomy chapter six and Deuteronomy chapter 11. They took this very literally. But again, what's the point? What's the point? It's not just decoration, right? And I don't think you actually have to do this. The point, the essence of this command Is that whenever you leave your house or whenever you come back to your house, again, the Word of God is governing everything you do. That when you leave your house or when you return to your house, the Word of God is to be constantly at the forefront of your mind. And then notice the last part of verse 9. You shall write them, the commands, on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. And on your gates. When you see the word gates here, don't think about the gates of your household, the white picket fence or anything like that. Jewish houses in the first century didn't have those. Uh, when you think about the word gates here, it's referring to the city gates. Uh, cities in the ancient areas in the first century, they had major city gates, and these were the thoroughfares of the city. This is where all of the traffic passed in and out of the city. And so anytime uh, elders would come and they would make rulings at the city gates, Likewise, if there was information that you wanted spread, it would be told at the city gates. There was a phrase that if something was common knowledge, it was said to be known in the gate. And this is what it's talking about. The idea here is that the word of God is to govern not only individual life, but it's to govern communal life as well. The entire city community there among these believing Jewish people was to be governed and influenced by the Word of God. So this is the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. We see that it's a confession, a statement of who God is. He is one, and they're to worship Him only. It's a confession of this uh, uh, or the commitment to love him with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength. And then this is to be passed on. It's to be continued from generation to generation. Uh, this passage of Scripture, again, uh, is incredibly important in the Old Testament. It really defines who Israel is as a nation and as a people. It was supposed to guide their daily life. But... We know that if we keep reading in the Old Testament, it didn't turn out this way, right? That the nation of Israel forgot what they were supposed to remember. The things they were supposed to pass on from generation to generation, this confession of who God is, this commitment to love him wholeheartedly, uh, eventually it fell on deaf ears. As we think about this passage and how it applies to us, One scholar says that if there's one text in the whole Old Testament that you commit to memory, let it be this text, which Jesus calls the greatest commandment. But as you memorize this passage, remember that ultimately it's Jesus who has lived this text for you. Because just like Israel failed, so will you and I. There's not a single person in this room who can say, we love God wholeheartedly with all our soul, all our strength, all our mind, everything with who we are is a wholehearted, pure worship of him. No one can say that. The bad news is, we're constantly turning aside just like Israel did. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus lives this to perfection. That where we have failed, he has succeeded. And the good news of the gospel is that when you trust in him, you get the forgiveness of your sins. Where we have constantly failed and fallen short, God removes that away. He takes it and removes it as far as the east is from the west. And in addition to that, he also imparts to you the very life of Christ. And that when God looks on you, he no longer sees our failure and our shame and our sin, but he sees the very righteous life of his son. And if you've not trusted in him, I want to give you the opportunity, the invitation where you are here in this room or watching online to trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. And then and only then, with the power of the Spirit and the resurrected life, can we love God this way. Scripture says we love because he first loved us. And even then, if we're honest, we still struggle with this, don't we? I mean, I confess to you, I can't say that I have this type of pure, unadulterated love for God, single-hearted devotion and adoration. Because we live in a world that is screaming for us to listen to its voice. The command here in Deuteronomy 6 begins with this idea of listen, hear. I read one person this week, a Jewish scholar, not a Christian scholar, who says that the reason the command is hear and not see is because hearing leads to obedience, seeing leads to idolatry. (laughs) But the idea here is that what we're called to and what purifies us in this process truly is the word of God. That what's unique about Judaism and Christianity is that we are a word-based faith. And what we believe, what we repeat What gets retold over and over begins to reform our thinking, reform our affections, reform our will and our desires. But all around us are idols that are begging for us to listen to their voice, that are calling out for our affections, that are wanting us to follow them. It's not a question of if you worship. It's a question of what you worship. It's not a question of if you exalt, but what you exalt. This is why John Calvin said the heart is a perpetual idol factory. Why Martin Luther said that what we cling to ultimately is our God. There's another quote I came across this week, and I saw it attributed to both Augustine and to Tolkien. I don't know who said it, but if you find out, I will give you one of those depleted gift cards uh, that are being offered. Uh, But more important than who said it is what it says, that the essential task of life is to set your loves in order. The essential task of life is to set your loves in order. Deuteronomy 6, the Shema, leads Israel, and I think by extension us, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we see here in this passage that love for God is connected with obedience to his commandments. It's God's word, truly, that transforms, that the Spirit uses to transform not only our mind, but our heart, our will. And there at the top of your outline I've given you a practical application for this week as we think about asking God to help us exalt him, to reform our thinking, to reform our loves, to reform our desires. A practical step is to ask, what are a few practical ways that you can teach, talk, bind, and write God's word throughout your day? Because we forget. We forget who God is in this confession. And we also forget the commitment that we're to make to him. So we need reminders. We need this to be continued from generation to generation. So this is Deuteronomy chapter six. This is the Shema. And I can think of no better way for us to close our service than to have us all stand. And I want us to recite the Shema together. And then we're gonna take communion together as this step of obedience and commitment. So if you would please, um, it is projected I'm reading from the New American Standard Version. Uh, Recite with me, repeat with me, Deuteronomy chapter 6, starting in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you for this incredibly rich passage. Thank you for the reminder that I need, that we all need, of who you are, that you are the one true God. There is no God besides you. No one compares, nothing compares to your greatness and to your majesty. And God, as we think about who you are, I ask that you would also instill within us this commitment to love you with singular devotion, to love you more than anything to give you our heart, to give you our soul, to give you everything we have. And God, I pray that as families and as a church body, you would help us to continue to repeat these stories, to repeat your goodness and your grace and mercy, not only to ourselves, to those around us, but to future generations, that more and more people might come to know who you are, and the love that you deserve, the love that you give us through Christ our Savior, in whose name I pray, amen.